happiness. So right now we are about to go to school. I hope you guys are ready. Please do welcome all that yes. One, two, one, two. We have cool. Good people and fellow students, welcome to the 50th episode of All That Yaz, which is our first live recording. How are you guys feeling? As I already said, I'm feeling quite nervous, but today we have a very, very important conversation that we're going to be having as we have already spoken about. This guest is a jack of all trades. When I say jack of all trades, I know we've introduced him as a venerated lawyer, and he is. He is a, he's an entertainment lawyer. He is a partner at Gani Mayet Law, and his range in law is quite expansive, but also he's an artist. This man is a pianist. He has done his own exhibitions of actual fine art. So when actually having this conversation, I think it's going to be quite important because we have a lawyer who also understands the creative art process. I've known him for about a year now, but we've been connected in different ways for much longer than that. It is Kevin Smith. Please welcome to the stage. Now, Kevin, how are you doing, sir? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Thanks for having me. Is there anything that I have, uh, is there anything you'd like to add that I may have missed from the intro that I've just given you? Um, no, I think you've pretty much covered it. Law, I'm a partner at my own law firm, um, exhibited artist, pianist, guitarist, pretty much do it all. From what I've seen, your relationship with art started way back. You used to draw Dragon Ball Z art as well as um, different types of anime. Where exactly, at what point did your relationship with art begin? I don't think I had a specific point when it began. It's something that's always been there. Some of my earliest memories of life, I remember myself either drawing on random pieces of paper, drawing on the wall, drawing in sand. Art has always been there for me. So through the progression of life, I think it just integrates more into your everyday enjoyment of life until it becomes a profession, which it is now for me. At what point, what, which one did you decide first as actually trying to take unprofessionally? Was it law or was it art first? It was art. Um, I actually applied to study fine art. I got accepted. But you know when you have parents of color, they don't believe in creative degrees. So I had a situation where my father actually said he wouldn't pay for my fees and I had to change what I had to study. Then coincidentally, um, I did a year of BA, politics, philosophy, and then thereafter I was accepted into law school. So essentially I was not intending to become a lawyer at first, I was intending to be a creative. But given that I have colored parents, they thought art isn't necessarily going to make you any money in this life, so you had to do something more appropriate and so I chose to do the law and I mean it's worked out. So then what made you then finally decide to settle on law as the thing which was going to be what could make your parents happy since um, from what I'm understanding that was part of the reasoning as to going into law? Well essentially it was more along the lines of what can I do that can give me access to other things as well. So if you look at the traditional careers that your parents may want you to do, it would be accounting, economics, doctor, you know. That. Engineering. Exactly, you know. So law wasn't part of the list that they gave me. So I was also still a bit rebellious <laughs> in that. I was like, okay, I'm not going to do what you guys want. I'll do You're something You've always been else. a rebel. Then. <laughs> exactly. But when you, when you look into it, I mean, law has access everywhere. If you think about what we're doing now, the legal implications of having the marketing displayed in a certain way, having public screenings of cinematographic films, 
the recording of this podcast. There are legal implications in literally everything that we do. So when I looked into what the essence of these careers may be, I saw that law is the one that is all-encompassing and universal in the same way that art and creativity is all-encompassing and universal. So I felt as though going into the legal space may still give me the essence that I have access to that untapped universal energy that I felt being creative. And it just so happens that with how law infiltrates itself into every aspect of our lives, I managed to get that synergy. But what I'm very then curious about, since you've now studied law and you've gotten into copyright, how has becoming a lawyer shaped your understanding of the concept of IP and copyright as an artist? So I'll, I'll take it back to times when I was practicing the law in different spaces. So from a creative perspective, I mean, all other creators may agree with me when I say this. Being creative is just who you are. You can't necessarily place an identifier or put your finger on why you want to be creative or why you want to express your creativity. It just is. So you never think about how this applies to the market or how it applies to economics in particular. Now, when you move into the legal space, the legal space isn't necessarily worried about the reason for you doing something. It's just there to ensure that you formalize it in a way that's accepted within the economic system that you're under or within the regulatory framework that you're working in. Now, that allows you to see things from two different ways. A creative sees something from the need to express, whereas a lawyer would see something in the need to protect and to make sure that you can benefit from that expression as much as possible. So when you look at intellectual property law in itself, what it actually does is it gives you access to certain business models. So that's what IP law actually is. So when you change your perspective on seeing it as a regulatory framework to more as an allower for you to access different business models, you can actually see the intent behind it. So that's where things like trademark, there's a differentiation between trademark, patenting, copyright, because each one of those gives you access to a different economic model. Well, then can you give us like a bit of a difference between the three as to what the difference is between a trademark, copyright, and yeah, those three different um, yeah. levels? So, so, so I'll get to that. So just a, as being a creative, what you can create could either be in each one of those three categories but you won't necessarily see it that way because you don't understand the economic model that's behind each of those creations. Yeah. All right. So if we start with a patent, for instance, a patent is for a novel invention or, or a new creation that isn't yet within the market. So that can be either something that's aesthetic or can be functional. Easy example of that would be like, for instance, a bottle cap. It has a design element, but it's also a functional design. And that design element can be applied across industries. So you see the economic model there is allowing an invention to make either one specific industry or many industries easier, either the means of production or the means of access to markets. Now then, when you look into trademark, trademark is more focused on what identifies your company to the average consumer. So the trademark can either be a certain color scheme that your, your company is known for, the logo that they may use, slogans that they may use. Some companies even incorporate what's called a sound mark. Now, people, a lot of people don't know what a sound mark is, but for instance, if you have a phone, when you switch that phone on and it has a jingle on the startup, that would be the sound mark because people can identify that sound to your company. So you see, we've already, we've already discussed two different economic models here. One is the use of an invention and how your invention can be used on a wide-scale basis. That's what a patent would be for. Trademark would be to protect the goodwill 
and your consumer base to your specific company so that someone else may not use what you've already applied within the market to get a certain customer base to their newly formed company or newly formed product because then the consumer would think maybe this new product has an association with BAI and their intent to either engage with that company maybe because they thought it was BAI or they thought you were behind it. So the economic model there is just to protect your consumer base. When you're looking to copyright in particular, copyright is actually protecting your creation as a creation because copyright lies in cinematographic work, musical work, literary works, things of that nature. So the three business models are first, you're going to protect the creative element of your expression. Then is that creative element going to be applied either in a, an industrial setting or is it going to be applied in the open market creatively? Then you then differentiate between are we going into trademark, are we going into patenting, etc. So then how would something like that then work within a musical realm? So in music, there's actually a lot more that applies. So within music, there's obviously the composition. So that would be the sheet music, the arrangement of the lyrics, the arrangement of the musical instruments, etc. Then there may be the studio performers, the ones who actually perform what the sheet music is in order to give you an audio recording. Then there's the audio recording itself. All three of those are copyrightable. They can either be copyrightable through joint ownership or through single ownership. And that's all part of who is going to be defined as the author. So the first step in copyright is to, de is to define who essentially authored this work. So the author of that work is the one who created it. So obviously the composer may have authored the composition, the performers may have authored the performance, and then the sound engineers and whoever is involved in the recording may have authored the audio recording thereof. So if there's an intent of all of those elements to create a jointly authored copyrightable work, then it becomes joint authorship and they share in the royalties or whatever that is um, in equal proportion. Now, in order for you to qualify as a joint author, the first distinction is, of course, you have to have made a copyrightable contribution, meaning that your contribution in itself isn't just part and parcel of the process, but has a copyrightable element within it. And then you have to have the intent that my copyrightable contribution will form part of this joint um, whole and it won't be divisible from the whole. So essentially, we're looking then at the audio recording thereafter. And then in the audio recording, we'll all have joint authorship. So one of the things that you talked about in terms of attaching yourself to IP and the concept of IP and law with creativity is more so about protecting yourself. And there are different types of, now when you get into contracts, that go towards protecting and or just how you go about working within business. And I remember when we had started, um, when we first came to you as filmmakers, when you're about to go pitch, you like to throw your pitches to a lot of different people. And we were talking about the fact that we would like to um, give someone an NDA and then you had actually advised us that NDA is not the actual, is not a as protective of a form of artwork as we actually believe in. There's an, a different thing called an NTNDA. So um, could you first kind of go into NTNDA NDAs and then also other what, what other types of contracts or things people should be looking out for when they're trying to actually protect their work as they're moving forward, build it when they've got this idea and or concept and they're now trying to get it into a full body of work that can then be copywritten. No, perfect. So I'll start off with the NDA and the concept of an NDA I think is prevalent because it's all over in 
social media, it's all over in mainstream media. It's something that people have a lot of exposure to. So they hear non-disclosure, they've heard of it in pop culture, so they think that that's actually what you need. However, non-disclosure, the only thing that it protects you from is that the parties involved in that agreement, they are not allowed to make certain other disclosures to a third party. Now, when we say disclosures, it's only forms of communication. So it's either I can't transfer the information given to me to a third party, or I can't verbally communicate what that information was. But it doesn't necessarily mean I can't make use of it, or I can't allow someone else to make use thereof because I now know what that information is. Now, that's where an NCNDA comes in. So the C in an NCNDA is called circumvention. So essentially, that means it's a non-disclosure, non-circumvention agreement. So circumvention, for instance, if I can look at it and use this as an example, because we were doing the contracts for the BAI showcase, I know what the concept of this would be. I knew when it was going to run. I could take that concept with someone else and hurriedly create my own production so that I can then bring this to market first. So that means I would have circumvented you in doing that. Now, you wouldn't have disclosed it to anyone. Exactly. Okay. Right? Because remember that for you to take me to court to enforce an NDA, you would have to prove that I made a disclosure. Just by the fact that I've made use of your concept doesn't necessarily imply that I made a disclosure in order to use your concept. Because I had knowledge of the concept, I knew how to make it or how to get it into production and to get it to market. So I could use other parties to do so without a disclosure ever having been made. Now, with an NCNDA, the implication can be inferred because you can say that prior to us having engaged or me drafting the contracts for you, I had no idea of a showcase in this specific format. Now, me bringing something similar to market, we can then just look at the timeline and think, okay, we first spoke at X date thereafter a production took place prior to your production coming to market meaning that i must have circumvented you in order to bring my concept which is similar in nature to yours so that is what people think that an nda does for them but an nda doesn't it just means that if any disclosures are made so if for instance your information gets in the hands of a third party and that third party for some reason you find out that they have access to your information then you prove that they a unauthorized disclosure has been made and we can then enforce whatever the breach provisions of the contract is. But as I said, it doesn't mean that we can't make use of that information because that third party may still make use of your information and they won't be liable for any circumvention at all because remember that you're only protected in as far as disclosures go. So when you do an NCNDA, you have to make sure that it's drafted in a way where your concept in itself, the agreement has to state that there's certain levels of information that I'm going to be giving you. Information such as concepts, information such as designs, information such as production schedules. And as a result thereof, that person will have a greater understanding of not just your business, but the business model of what you're currently doing. So if for some reason, either them or someone in their network or someone within the economic circle makes use of this concept, you can hold them and those people liable for having circumvented you and your idea and your concept. So when people have, when people think about a protective agreement, NDA does work to some extent, but the best thing to do is a non-disclosure, non-circumvention agreement. Before I move on to what I want to talk on next, do we have any questions or people would like to get further clarification on anything? Sure. Oh, hi. How are you doing? Uh, you talked about derivative work. Yeah. So I wanted to understand how does that work in, you know, adaptive screenplays. So I'll start with a more, with an easier concept. And then I'll work my way to your specific example. 
So a derivative work obviously first starts from a original copyrighted work, right? So that could be either a literary work, meaning it's a poem or anything that is literary it can be a musical work, photograph or artwork. Like for instance, the shirt I'm wearing is a painting from Basquiat. So the painting itself is the original copyrightable work. This being placed on a shirt means it's a derivative of his artwork. So this is in itself a derivative work. So in when it comes to a screenplay, the screenplay itself being a literary work has its own automatic copyright protection. Because remember that when it comes to copyright, you don't have to register your copyright. You have automatic protection as per our Copyright Act, the TRIPS Convention and the Berne Convention, right? So your essential screenplay has its own copyright within it. If someone else then adapts that screenplay, they are making a derivative thereof into a cinematographic form. So you first have to enforce your protection of your copyright in the literary work. That person who then wants to make the um, adaptation has to sign a derivative license with you. You granting them, obviously, the license to make a derivative work of your screenplay. And then you can either go into a uh, co-authorship thereof or share in the copyright of the cinematographic film that then ensues. And then the other implication thereof would be the public and private screenings of that work because your screenplay will then be turned into a film. That film may be screened either privately or publicly. They have to then get a separate license for those screenings as well. Because if they intend to make any economic benefit from private screenings, as a result of your copyrighted work, you have to share in that economic benefit. Now, the exception may only be if your film or your screenplay is adapted for educational purposes, then the right of fair use may then allow for them to do so without you getting further copyright compensation. There was something that you mentioned in there um, in terms of the fact that your work is already copywritten based upon the trips and the Berne Convention. Can you just explain to us what those conventions are? Because I don't think many of us know what those conventions or what governs those so we understand what it is that actually governs the protection of our copyright. Right. So copyright has jurisdictional regulation, then it has international regulation. Now, the jurisdictional re um, regulation is your actual legislation of your country. In South Africa, that would be our Copyright Act. Now, internationally, just think of this practically. If each country has their own way of dealing with copyrights, a lot of copyright work is cross-border, like your film could be screened internationally. Now, if there's a difference in our copyright jurisdiction and the jurisdiction of, let's say, the United States where your, your film may go, then we're obviously going to have litigation in order to determine how they make use of your copyrighted work. Now, in order for that not to take place, a lot of countries sign international treaties, which then give a uniform nature to how they will then be treating the copyright works. One of those international treaties is the Bern Convention. It's called the Bern Convention because it was signed in Bern. Trips Convention, similar. Those conventions are just international standards that allow people to have a uniform way of dealing with intellectual property. Now, for the most part, most countries are signed there too, but in Africa, I think Kenya is one of the few African countries that aren't signed to any of those international treaties. So you can't necessarily apply those um, standards when you do any work in, in Kenya, for instance. But for the most part, most, most countries are covered by one or more of those treaties. So what then happens in that instance, for example, you're saying Kenya isn't covered within those treaties. What does that exactly mean for copyright? So that means that they will have their own legislation on how copyright is dealt with. So if you, for instance, made a film, if it is shot on location in Kenya, the 
um, jurisdictional legislation applies. If, however, the film is shot in South Africa, our Copyright Act would apply. But if the screening is then done internationally, then you have to then look at what their internal jurisdiction or their legislation then applies to. So to the extent that we don't have any cross-border pollination, if that happens in South Africa, the South African standard applies. If everything is done within Kenya, then their own um, internal legislation would apply. So then moving back into the concept of contracting, what are some of the essential things that um, artists and creators in general need to be aware of when they're approaching either making a contract or approaching someone like you to then do a contract on their behalf when they're actually moving into the world to protect or exploit their work? If we just think about a contract in general, it doesn't matter what's written on the cover of your contract. If a third party doesn't understand the transaction that lies in that contract without you having to be there to explain it to them, then you don't have a contract, right? So, for instance, if we are... Just, in, just unpack that a little bit more. Okay, so, so what I always tell all clients is that what's written on the cover of the contract doesn't matter, right? Each contract embodies a certain transaction between one or more people. Now, if your contract can explain itself, can explain the start to finish of that transaction, and if anything happens, what the contract then has to deal with, that would be your breach provisions or your termination provisions. If that can't be self-explanatory to a normal third party without you having to be there to explain it, then you don't have a contract. Because then that means that the enforceability of that contract needs further interpretation. And that further interpretation is going to come in the form of a legal dispute or it's going to come in the form of us going to court in order to either enforce the provisions of the contract or to sever some of the provisions of that contract. So that's where we have to have the first starting point. So you as a creative have to think, what is the transaction that I'm entering into? Let's say it's, it's for a derivative work. So I'll use another real-world example. This jacket that I'm wearing is from a company called Indyware in Eldorado Park. We're doing a collaborative project where I'll be designing a lot of their clothes, right? So that places me as a creative as one that they're either going to be making derivative works of my artwork or I'm going to be creating new designs in the form of either the garments themselves or whatever's going to be placed on those garments. So those are the two transactions. Now let's look at the derivative work. Let's say they take some of my artwork and put it on the jackets, for instance. Yeah. That means that first we have to establish that engagement. And that engagement is that we are going on one economic journey, being that collaboratively they'll be manufacturing clothes using my artwork. So we first have to get that in black and white. Yeah. So that would mean if it's going to be in the form of a joint venture, because our companies aren't going to be partners, that means that they are, we have to establish what they bring to the table, what I bring to the table. Because on a joint venture, if you do a joint venture agreement, there isn't any cross-pollination of shares or equity in each other's companies. We only joined in as far as this one project goes. So my equity in the joint venture is design work, giving them access to my artwork and allowing them any licenses or sub-licenses to create derivative works. Their obligation or their equity in terms of the joint venture would be the manufacturing uh, making sure they get the necessary approvals, quality checks, etc. So now that's the joint venture aspect taken care of. Now remember that part of my obligations is to ensure that they get the necessary licenses. What are those licenses? Derivative work license, because they're going to be making derivatives of my artwork. So I then unpack within that derivative license that we sign, what will be the terms and conditions thereof? What would be the split in royalties? What would be the extent of the use of my artwork? Because remember, if I say that you have the derivative license to produce garments 
doesn't necessarily imply that they also can use my artwork for marketing. Doesn't mean that they can use it for branding. You see, so when we go into those licenses, I have to specify to them as well the extent of use that they have access to. But then how would you, uh, in this scenario, differentiate, since it's going on garments, what constitutes marketing and what doesn't constitute marketing? So marketing could be like, for instance, banners. It could okay, be, got you. It could be displays in the in their shop. It could be um, on the Instagram, on the website, whatever the case may be. So using, essentially using that, um, whatever your art piece outside of the realm of what, um, it being on the garment exactly. for them to constitute it, it as being marketing. Exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. So my license can place all of those so that they aren't in contention. So that if, for instance, I see my artwork on a billboard, I know that I've granted them the license to do so. If I haven't, then I can institute a copyright claim where I can claim for damages or I can claim for a reasonable royalty. Because remember that in part of you protecting your IP, you have to protect the economic benefit of having created intellectual property. So if they are going to get any specific tangible economic benefit from using my artwork, I should share in that benefit. Whether that economic benefit comes from marketing whether it comes from the sale of the garment, whatever the case may be. And that will have to be encompassed in the license so that I understand from an economic perspective what this whole journey will be bringing for us. Because remember, the joint venture deals with our partnership and how, let's say, uh, profit split, how that will be done, how decisions will be made, what the exco of the joint venture will be. But it doesn't necessarily tie into all of the aspects of my copyright that can also still have economic benefit. Does that cover, because I know we went on a bit of a tangent, does that cover what you were talking about in the full essence of the essentials of approaching contracting? Not necessarily, because contracts, as I said, they, they're very subjective in nature in that they have to deal with the specific economic relationship that we are dealing with. So if it was um, part and parcel of music, that would be different. Let's say, for instance, you are a recording artist and I, as a filmmaker, want to include your music in my film. The license would still be the same, but it would be a different type of license because you would need a synchronization license. Yeah. So instead of me giving you a license for derivative work, I'd give you a sync license so that my music can be synced into the, the film. So it ties again into the economic relationship that you guys will be forming. And then there will be a specific license to ensure that that happens. A very interesting thing that I'd written, that I'd read <laughs> um, whilst doing the research is that you actually stated that you've made more money within your career from art and exploitation of art than you have from actually being a lawyer. Is that, is that still correct? Because that was from like 2019. It was great in 2019. And I'll tell you why I said that at the time. So if we look at, again, as I said, IPs about business models. Right? Yeah. If I create a painting, that's one thing that can be sold as a physical product, right? And you know the, the price range of paintings, like um, for mine at exhibition can go from a minimum of 20K upwards. I won't go into what the maximum has been, but you know what I'm, what I'm talking about. You can yeah. make a whole lot of money just selling the paintings. But then there's also the, the other aspect of merchandising. There's the other aspect of derivative works, like for instance, clothing, marketing or design work. So... When you take just the physical product itself is one painting, but from that you can derive at least another three to four economic models just from that one physical painting. So at the time it was true um, in the sense that I was selling a whole lot of paintings and prints of my paintings 
and you know the prints are obviously derivative works but because they are done by the copyright holder there's no problem in that so from each painting there would also be the exhibition there's access to the exhibition there's ticket sales there's marketing there's sponsorship right but now obviously as the firm has grown and we've moved and we are now um, one of the premier firms in South Africa, I think that definitely has changed. Not just because my retainer amount, but just we're doing a lot of groundbreaking work. We're currently working on, um, I can't just obviously disclose much about what the case is about, but one of the biggest copyright claims in Africa, not just in South Africa, in Africa as a whole. And it's dealing with a photograph of a former statesman that has been copywritten and the infringement thereof has obviously taken us into the billions in what the, the damages claim might be. Did you say billions for photograph? Yeah. Because remember that in terms of our Copyright Act, each copyright infringement has a specific number that's attached to it. So for instance, if you infringe my copyright in a photograph the first time, there's a 5,000 rand penalty. Now each time that infringement happens, there's another 5,000 rand penalty. I see. Right. So, so this is a cumulative, the accumulation of this is... Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So just with that being said, with handling such massive cases, it wouldn't be true for me to still say that my art makes more than, than law because that's not the case now, but at the time, yeah, it was. But then now, speaking of the actual cases, are there any cases which you'd be comfortable speaking about? I've been involved in um, getting artists endorsements, getting them sponsorship deals, getting them derivative licenses for the use of either their artwork, getting them sync licenses into film, into television. There have been concepts of festivals that have helped trademark, have helped the trademarking of quite a few things. Um, I've even been involved in the intellectual property of one of the first um, South African manufactured smartphones. And for you, what has been the most interesting and why specifically? I think the current one that I'm dealing with, um, which is going to be the biggest in on the continent, I think that's the most interesting only because of what the subject matter was and the extent of infringements. And I think it was a groundbreaking one because when you deal with law in particular, especially something like the creativity and the law surrounding creativity, especially in Africa, it's very underdeveloped. Whereas if we were in the, the United States, for instance, a lot of these things have been litigated numerous times. So the law in it is pretty much standard, you know. But when it comes to the law, especially in Africa, if something hasn't gone to court yet, it hasn't been set in stone, right? So the legislation may be there, but legislation is only a framework. It's the people on the ground that actually develop the law itself through these contentions or through certain precedents being made. Now, the case that we're currently dealing with is going to set such a precedent. And that is going to become important for creatives everywhere because it not only will then develop the law and cement what it means to have a photograph and what the copyright holder, what their rights are in terms of that photograph and how far that extends, not just in South Africa, but internationally as well and how your creativity specifically in that space can be used and what are the, the the minimums that you can claim from it because one thing that creatives also struggle with is applying a value to what it is that they're doing applying value to their creativity so in what we're trying to do through this case is to set some standards so that a creative doesn't have to take a raw deal just because they need to because now the law will dictate and say that for this type of work, this is what this person needs to get paid at a minimum. So for me, that's that, that's one of the important things of how the law ties into creativity is because only through these types of 
um, legal battles and through court litigation can we set those standards because before people like us take these matters to court it's the wild wild west do you know what i'm saying yeah and right now that's what africa creatively is it's still the wild wild west so for me i think this is a very important one because i hope that um when we do win this case which we should um the standards for creatives is going to be elevated to a point where they don't have to be a creative as a second job or they don't have to do creativity on the side you can actually start living off of your creativity from the jump i'm going to take a second round of questions if people uh, need questions i have a question um for creatives for example actors you go you're going for an audition when you go for the audition there's a, a form you, you fill and you sign and a lot of those forms they will write you accept use of your your picture uh, for advertising for this and that and that and that and the other you may have an agent but before you even sometimes go into the audition you need you have to sign that and sometimes i feel very uncomfortable about that who is responsible and how can we as actors be responsible not signing that and then for our agent knowing how can we be protected where you're made to sign things before the product is actually even done. So there's actually two elements um, that are important there. The first element and what it is that you're actually signing is that you're either assigning your copyright to them or you are having a waiver of any copyright infringement claim thereafter. So that's essentially what you're signing away. As an actor, actually anyone in any profession, your image rights, that's a tangible asset. And by you signing away or assigning a certain element of copyright in your image rights, that means you are giving away a tangible asset that should form part of your estate. The problem with those types of forms being signed, especially prior to any product being filmed or anything happening or anything taking place, is that because the climate in South Africa, unfortunately, is one where creatives need these companies these companies assume that you would give them your copyright or else you won't work with them or they won't work with you so the easiest thing for your agent to do is to have a standard disclaimer or a standard form that you can take to the audition that does not give away your image rights or if it does sign away your image rights it already ties a reasonable royalty to it because essentially that's what you're doing you're granting them the license to make use of your image or you are assigning them a license with you signing that because that signature means it's now contract. So the two elements are already there. The element of contracting, meaning that you've agreed to it, and the second element of you assigning your copyright claim in whatever it is that's going to be produced, whether that's headshots, whether that's a recording, whatever the case may be. So the easiest thing for you to do is to have a standard form that you take with you to these auditions where it can state that for me to assign my copyright, I either want this percentage in whatever is economically recovered or alternatively, you would have to get my approval before they make use of it in marketing or whatever the case may be. Because those things, as I said, given that it's a contract, means that you can add any elements that you please. And if it suits your needs for, for that specific project, whether that be exposure, whether that be to get yourself into these marketing fields or whether it just be for the collection of royalties, that's what you need to place inside your standard template so that you have one with you at all times. But going into a negotiation process with the one that they give you, that's just going to be a long-standing process and will mean that you may have to then give up that opportunity. So your agent needs to either make contact with an attorney to draft one for you, or if he understands the law surrounding um, 
the assignment of a copyright, then he should just draft one and you must have those with you at each audition. We have space for one more question. Time for one more question. So do you guys have like a copyright database? Because there can be an incident where we both develop an idea, a concept, and then you register it locally. And then I copyright it online. At the end of the day, we have both copyrighted the idea. How does it work in that situation? So remember I said that you don't register copyright in South Africa. There's automatic protection. But the situation that you're describing happens all the time. Where maybe you have taken a picture and then that picture gets taken or someone uses the subject matter of that picture somewhere else. Now with that, there are a few elements that you can use to protect yourself. You'll see that certain people in South Africa in particular, when they assert their copyrights, they put the copyright symbol with a date on it. Now, that's just to say that you were the one first in time to have used that idea. Because if my copyright, let's say I take a picture on the stage and below it, I put a copyright disclaimer that says copyright 2022. If someone else makes a derivative thereof in 2023, the only thing I can do to then assert that I was the one that has the initial copyright is to show that in 2022, I was already making use of this copyrightable material. So one of the elements in protecting yourself is to show when in time you were the one making use of it. Companies, what they will do is by registering, let's say, for instance, your company has a specific name, having that name registered with the CIPC also derives you a certain element of copyright because in order for the CIPC to grant you that, that name of the company, they have to first see if there's other companies in existence with that name because they may be making use of the copyright. Once you pass that test, it already shows that at the time of me registering this company, no one was making use of either this trademark, making use of this name. So that gives you automatic protection as well. But the easiest thing for you to do, as I said, is to make your own copyright disclaimer with a date attached so that you can show that at the time of me creating this copyrightable work, this is the, the period of time that it was at. Anyone whose period is, is preceding your copyright disclaimer, they may have a claim to the extent that your work isn't original from theirs. Because remember that for copyright to be protected, it doesn't necessarily have to be a completely new invention. You just need to show that there was an element of creativity that only you could have applied to this work and an essence of originality in how you created that certain piece of work. So if I take a picture of a picture that you've taken, there's no originality, there's no creativity there. However, we can both take a picture of the stage in two creatively different ways and we'll both have separate copyrights in it because you, you will have your own element of originality, you'll have your own element of creativity as well. This conversation definitely needs a part two, um, but unfortunately we have come to the end of this part of the workshop as we we're about to start the next one. Thank you so much for actually giving us your time and a lot of this knowledge. If people wanted to understand a little bit more about you, if you wanted to get in contact with you further with regards to Ghani Mayet or even with, with regards to your art, how can they do so? Um, so on social media, it's Agent K Smith, Agent underscore K Smith. Um, you'll have access to me there. My work email would be kevin at a-g-a-i-n-c dot co dot um, What I do is I also give people access to a lot of ebooks that I draft for free. Ebooks relating to either contractual law, uh, copyright, IP, 
just so that we can get the information in the right hands because i do feel as though there is a barrier between people accessing attorneys whether that's a cost barrier whether it's just in how we've been depicted in the past where people have an aversion to approach us so without people having this knowledge that i feel should be universal i think a lot of creatives are at a disadvantage because they're going to tie either a disbelief in how an attorney can help them or the cost to access an attorney in them protecting themselves and actually making money off of being a creative so i do give people access to a lot of either free consultations uh, free ebooks that i've drafted a lot of information that i think should be in the hands of creatives from a starting point because without you understanding the regulatory framework of what it means to be creative you can never actually create a business model around it because as i said intellectual property law is about creating certain business models and that business model will then tie into how you guys um, bring your creativity to the market so i'm readily available um, send me a dm send me a message drop me an email and yeah let's get let's get creatives to a point where we can actually start sustaining ourselves through our creativity without having to be tied to any um, corporate or tied to anything and just be creatives for the sake of it that has been the 50th episode of all that yes thank you so much and thank you kevin for 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 coming through and we i shall now call upon our lovely host loyola to tell us what is next that was the 50th episode of all that yes recorded at the bai showcase thank you so much for listening you can also follow the BAI Showcase on social platforms. I know they'll be releasing some of the visually recorded footage from this podcast and more of the workshops. And BAI is an amazing resource for our entertainment community, so check them out when you have the time. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can do so by sending an email to allthatyaspodcast at gmail.com. I repeat, allthatyaspodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned as we bring you more insightful episodes of our podcast. I am Yaz from All That Yaz. And have a lovely rest of your day.